Good. Okay. So Acts, we've been kind of bouncing around from Jerusalem. We were in Antioch, then Jerusalem. Uh, we'll be back in Antioch today. So last week, really Acts 12 is the last chapter that focuses on the Jerusalem church. The Jerusalem church was the first church in Acts 12. What we saw last week was really the last chapter that focuses on it. And we saw Herod, who's the king, increasing pressure. He begins to persecute the church, arrest James and cuts his head off, arrest Peter with the intention of cutting his head off. But then the church begins to pray, and that was what we grabbed onto. The, the, the idea there was praying earnestly. That was the, the adverb. That was how the church was praying. And we said for us, we want to do that as well. We want to pray with perseverance and some level of intensity. There are things that stir our heart. Not everything stirs our heart at that level. But something, some things should, and some things do stir our heart at that level. And we want to begin to tap into that. When we pray and the results of the church praying earnestly, Peter is miraculously delivered from jail. Herod is struck down by an angel eaten by worms and dies. So those are the results of the church praying earnestly and the gospel continues to spread. Today we're going to look back up at Antioch, so 300 miles north of Jerusalem. We saw this church a couple of weeks ago in chapter 11. It's the first Gentile church. So it's the first church that's formed that is predominantly Gentile. It was founded by anonymous Christians. We don't know who. It was just some nameless, faceless disciples who were scattered from Jerusalem who began to preach to Gentiles in Antioch. Uh, Barnabas was sent from Jerusalem to Antioch to make sure everything was okay. The apostles wanted to make sure the work that was going up there was legit. So they send Barnabas, and he goes and gives it a stamp of approval. The church continues to grow under Barnabas' leadership, and it gets overwhelming. And so he goes and finds Paul. Or Saul, same guy. Uh, He goes and grabs him from Tarsus. Paul has been there for several years. We don't know what he's been doing. Uh, There's the silent years for Paul. He goes and gets Paul and brings him back to help. And Barnabas and Paul co-lead the church for a year. There's a famine in Judea. It's predicted by a prophet. And so the church in Antioch says, we want to send money back down to Jerusalem to make sure those guys can weather the storm. And they send that money through Barnabas and through Paul. And that's where we'll pick up Barnabas and Paul coming back from dropping that money off. When Barnabas and Saul, also Paul, had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. That's Barnabas's cousin. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So after they'd fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. So a couple of things just from those two verses. One, there's a mix at Antioch. The Jerusalem church is 100% Jewish. It's Jewish men and women who have, uh, who have um, accepted Jesus as their Messiah. The church in Antioch is much more eclectic. You've got a mix of uh, spiritual gifts. You've got prophets who tend to focus on what God is saying now and teachers who tend to focus on what God has said in the past. You've got mixed races. Simeon was most likely black. You've got mixed religious backgrounds. Saul or Paul was raised as a Pharisee, a very strict Pharisee, you've got a mix of classes. This guy, Menaean, would have been raised in the king's house, so he's a high-class guy. You have all of those things coming together, all those different groups coming together in Antioch. It's a picture of the kingdom in a way the Jerusalem church is not. I, I don't know this. I would imagine the Jerusalem church was tighter. 
They didn't just have Jesus in common. They had language in common. They had history in common, religion in common, culture, customs in common. In Antioch, I don't know if they had that many strong ties. They had Jesus. I'm not sure if they had anything beyond that in common. But it's a picture for us of what unity looks like. It's not uniformity. There's diversity in the Antioch church, but they all have the same foundation. There's a core around Jesus that all of these people are rotating around or navigating around. There's this idea in organizations you can be a centered set or a bounded set. If you remember, you don't want to remember, but if you remember Venn diagrams from when you were growing up, you remember that? Circles that overlap. So you can have a set that's bounded. It's got a strong, it's got a clear fence around it. You're in or you're out. You can have a set with a strong center and the boundary can be a lot fuzzier. The guys that I read about this a few years ago and the guys that were talking about this were from Australia. And they said in Australia, your, your, your land is so large, fences are superfluous. They don't help you. Your sheep can be in your fence and you still can't find them because you have so many acres. So what you do is you dig a well because sheep aren't going to wander too far from the water. And you see in Jerusalem's a bounded set. They're very tight on what it meant to follow Jesus. And a lot of it had to do with being a Jew. And we see the church breaking out and the gospel breaking out from those uh, strictures in Acts chapter 10 and 11 and 12 and 13. And we see in Antioch, it's a centered set. Jesus is the center. We don't have a lot of firm boundaries. It can make people nervous because it's squishier. It's are you in or are you out? We're not really sure. You're not necessarily signing on a dotted line and agreeing to a bunch of bullet points. But we hold in common that Jesus is the Lord, and you see that here in Antioch. And that's a, that's a word for us, a picture for us of what it means to be the church in Marietta and the church in Cobb County with a capital C. What are the things that we can agree on? Can we agree that Jesus is the Lord? He's the Son of God. And that is, can that be enough for us to begin to connect with other people who don't necessarily go all the way down the line with us? on their doctrinal statements. We've said here in Marietta and in Cobb County, one of the biggest strongholds is exclusivity. It's boundaries. It's keeping people out based on race or income or social status. What we see here in Antioch is the obliteration of those boundaries centering around Jesus as the Lord. So uh, hopefully a word of encouragement and maybe even a challenge to you in your own world. Are there boundaries that God may ask you to cross? Just one. Is there one thing God would ask you to do? This is super, super, super small for many of you. For me, it's a big deal. I'm trying once a week to have lunch with a pastor. That's it. Just to break through some of those denominational and church walls that keep us from connecting with one another. Is there something, is there a parallel for that in your own life? To think of a barrier. Ask the Lord. Is there some way that we're being divided uh, around things that don't need to be keeping us Apart. Second thing that you see here in this church in Antioch is the people, the church, owned the, the vision or the mission or the commission. Jesus says in Acts 1-8, you're going to be my witnesses. And in Antioch, they get it. The Jerusalem church, I'm not criticizing, obviously. But there's a huge difference between the church in Jerusalem and the church in Antioch. And it really centered around these 12 celebrities that the Jerusalem church had. They had Peter, they had James, they had John, they had Thomas, they had Matthew. They had these guys who spent three years personally interacting with Jesus. And human nature, if you're in an organization, if you're a part of a group and you've got guys like that, is to take a step back and let them run the show. 
and to let them carry the important things. They've been, I haven't been with him the way they've been with him. And so it's very natural and normal. Again, it's human nature to take a step back and to defer to people like Peter and James and John. I'm not saying that those guys asked for that. Again, I think it's just human nature to say, this is where it's at. Those guys, they've got something that I don't have, and, and we're just going to hang around here. Over the course of years, Jesus said, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, and the Jerusalem church can't, they can't get going. They continue to get bigger as a body, but they never multiply. They never move out. And again, why would you? You've got these 12 guys. You're not going to get them anywhere else. Nobody else has the stories these guys have about Jesus. Nobody else does. Nobody else has the familiarity with him that these guys have. So why in the world would you ever leave until there's a persecution and you're forced to? And that's what happened with the church in Jerusalem. You don't see that in Antioch. There's no apostolic presence. Peter never goes. John never goes. James never goes. It's founded by people who name, whose names we don't know, just regular followers of Jesus. And they start this church, and as it, as it grows, the apostles never go. They never put their hands on it. And so in Antioch, there's this sense of, well, if it's going to be done, then we've got to do it. We can't wait for Peter, and we can't wait for James, and we can't wait for John. It's on us. Jesus said to be witnesses, so I guess it's us because there's nobody else in the room. And so Antioch becomes the first church to send out missionaries. They're it. They beat Jerusalem. Jerusalem is older than them, and they beat Jerusalem to the punch on that. They're the first church to intentionally send out missionaries, and they send out their best. They send out Paul, and they send out Barnabas. They're fasting. You only fast when you're seeking God. They're seeking God. What do you want us to do? And the Holy Spirit says, I want those two guys. Give me Barnabas and give me Paul. I'm setting them apart for the work. And they say, okay, and they lay hands on them, which is commissioning them. And then they send Paul and Barnabas out for us. That's why it's so, so important. It's why I'm a broken record saying, what is your deal? What is your calling? What are the good works that God has created in advance for you to do? If our city, if our community is ever going to be transformed, it's, it's happening here. It's not happening here. The ministry is in the hearts of the people who God gathers Together, it's Antioch, it's not Jerusalem. The best ideas this church has had for ministry have not come from our pastoral staff. Acts 6, the ministry that we have to the poor. Two guys in the church, that was their idea. Park Street Soccer, Park Street ESOL. Two different ladies in the church did not come from our staff. I got an email or a text from a guy the other day. He's a hunter. And he said, hey, have you heard of Hunters for the Hungry? Of course I have not heard of Hunters for the Hungry. But... It's a thing. If you hunt, they process meat and then they, they give it away. It's a great idea. And I called our contact at Must and said, can you do something? And she's connected him with somebody in her organization. It's a great idea. didn't come from our church. You've seen flyers out on the windows for Marietta Grassroots. It's a music festival. didn't come from our staff. The member of our church said, I want to figure out a way to bless local unsigned artists. And that's what he came up with. Uh, there, was a, there was a couple of ladies in the church, I think it was back in February, did a princess tea for women coming out of the sex trafficking industry. That didn't come from our staff. The best ideas are out here. Antioch. Well, if you remember a few weeks ago, we talked about Peter versus Antioch, how difficult it was for Peter to cross the line to get into Cornelius' house to finally meet with a Gentile. He sees a vision three times, hears a voice from heaven three times. That's what it takes to get him moving. When you read in chapter 11, these guys in Antioch, 
It just says they just decided to talk to some folks. It was easy, super easy for them. Why? They had relationships with Gentiles. Peter didn't. Peter didn't know a Gentile. So it was easy to say, well, if they want to follow Jesus, they've got to become like me because they didn't know anybody. These guys in Antioch did. They lived 300 miles away from Jerusalem. They knew tons of Gentiles. And they knew how important it was for them to know the good news. And they were thinking, they're never going to be circumcised. Is there a way that they can follow Jesus without that? Peter was invested in the status quo. He was a Judean Jew. He lived in the shadow of the temple. The temple was so important to him. These guys in Antioch, they're 300 miles away from the temple. They go three times a year max, and it's max when Jesus comes on the scene. It's the same thing for y'all. You have relationships I'm never going to have with people who are never coming through the doors, and that's fine. We're not trying to get people to come here. We're trying to get people to Jesus. And you have a, your key in that. And that's why we press constantly. What is God calling you to? What are the good works that he's created in advance for you to do? What is the part he's asking you to play? The city doesn't change. The county doesn't change. Apart from people owning, their, owning that vision. It's not from me. It's Jesus, the heart of his prayer. Matthew 6, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're praying for. That's what community transformation is. And the way that prayer is answered is by men and women, regular people who may never have their name anywhere. It doesn't, they don't even want it. Saying, God, what have you called me to? And beginning to live obediently in those directions. Then Paul and Barnabas, they go. The two of them. Sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. They traveled through the whole island until they came to Paphos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, I'm going to pause. Remember we said that was just, as his Hebrew name is Saul and his uh, Roman name is Paul. So he's now in a Roman area, so he's going by Paul. Filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, You're a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You're full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? So that's tough. Child of the devil, enemy of everything that's right, full of deceit and trickery and perverting the ways of the Lord. Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You're going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about, seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. So Paul and Barnabas go. They go to Cyprus, which is where Barnabas was from, and they just move from town to town. It was Paul's normal M.O. to start in the synagogue. Even though he was called to Gentiles, he always started with the Jews. He always gave them the first opportunity to respond to the gospel. Sometimes they did, sometimes they did. It was kind of a mixed bag. And then he would move on to the uh, more Gentile areas of a town or a city or a country. So that's what they're doing. They're working their way across this island. They wind up in Paphos. And the, the picture we have from Luke, or the snapshot, it's this confrontation between Paul and Elimas, or Bar-Jesus, that means son of the Savior in Hebrew. So it's this confrontation between those two guys. So Bar-Jesus, you can think of him as like a spiritual con man. 
So what he would, he would be smooth talking, he'd be super confident, uh, he, he would most likely be telling God, I can help you make good decisions. I can get some revelation, I can get some insight into what's coming up so that you look good, so that you, I'll give you some, some data on what's coming down the pike so you can make good decisions. That's most likely what he was claiming. Not necessarily predicting the future all the way, but you know how some of these guys work. Vague enough that anything fits under the umbrella. He's always right. That's probably what this guy was doing. And then Paul comes on the scene, and he realizes his meal ticket is about to get punched. He's, he's going to get kicked out of the, the, the court here. Once Sergius Paulus realizes he has direct access to God, and he doesn't need to go through bar Jesus, once he realizes the Holy Spirit will live within him and he will guide him and direct him, he doesn't need that guy anymore. And so he feels threatened, and so you have this confrontation. Some of y'all have seen Lord of the Rings that remind of someone on our staff we were talking about this week, and she said, that's the picture for me. You've got this king, Theoden, and you've got this guy named Wormtongue. I don't know why you would ever want anybody named Wormtongue talking to you. Seems like that would be an indication he's probably not a good guy. But you've got Wormtongue, and he just spins these little webs in Theoden's mind, and you can see what he looks like. There, he's completely under his spell. And then Gandalf, he's the hero of the story, shows up and he breaks the spell. You can see in that next picture and Theoden kind of comes back to life. And that's what you see here. It's kind of a, with, with Paul and with Sergius and with Bar-Jesus. You have this confrontation between good and evil. And Bar-Jesus is wicked all the way through. He's preventing somebody from responding to the gospel. And you don't, you don't do that. Jesus says it's better for a millstone to be hung around your neck than to get in the way of somebody trying to respond to him. And so the judgment on him is swift and it's severe, but it's not permanent. It's for a time. It's intended to bring him to repentance. We don't know if he repented, but he had an opportunity. He wasn't doomed to blindness. He wasn't doomed to hell for life. He had an opportunity to repent. So you move him out of the way, and then Sergius is able to see, wow, there's power in what Paul is saying. That's he, this gospel that he's bringing, that he's hearing for the first time, well, that's confirmed because you just made a guy go blind. That's unusual, and so there's power here. And Sergius responds positively and becomes a believer. It reminded me of this incident of several years ago. So I go to the, a gym, and I used to go to the locker room pretty regularly. And I stopped going to the locker room probably six months ago because they put a sign on the sauna and the sign says, please wear appropriate clothing when you enter the sauna. And so I was thinking, like, where do we live that you've got to put a sign on a public place that says wear clothes if you're going to I don't get it. Why would you not wear clothes if you're going into a place where you're going to see other people? It's not your bedroom. It's not your bathroom. Strangers are going to be sitting in there with you. Why do you need a sign that says Wear clothes. And so I quit going into the locker room. So this story is several years old. And in the locker room, I don't know women's locker rooms, obviously, but men's locker rooms, there's a bit of a social dynamic. Every locker room has a mayor. It's someone who kind of glad hands and he knows everybody and he's always glad to see you. He's never tired from exercising. He's always got something to say. There's also, and again, I don't know how women's locker rooms are, but in men's locker rooms, there's a subset of people called comfortable nudes. And they are more than happy to carry on a conversation with you when they're not wearing any clothes. And at the gym that I go to, there's a lot of them. 
and not to be too superficial, but these guys are not, they're not underwear models that are walking around without their clothes on at all. There seems to be a, a kind of a correlation. The less of you we want to see, the more of you we see kind of thing. And in our gym, there's like a 15-foot-long mirror. So you're always getting 360-degree exposure to these people. And they're, they're guys, some of y'all go to the same gym as me. Like, they're watching TV naked, taking thought tips. Put on a towel. Public place. So I'm in there one day, and I, if I, I would always hang my head. Always. I'm an introvert, and I don't want to, I would always hang my head. So my head's down, and there's a guy, he doesn't come around anymore, I haven't seen him. Actually, I never actually saw him in the gym, I only saw him in the locker room. So he may, he may still be there. And I don't know if he was a witch doctor or a medicine man, he may have been a brain surgeon, I don't know. But he was always dispensing medical advice, and he always did it naked, always. And so I'm in there, and my head's down, and I'm tired. Because I actually exercise, and I'm kind of medicine man, and he's giving advice to this guy. And I have to look up because I have to leave. And I look up, and the guy who's receiving advice is sitting down, and the medicine man is standing right in front of him. It's a terrible view all the way around. And you've got the mirror behind you. And in my mind, this is what I'm thinking. How sick is that guy that he's willing to listen to the medicine man in that environment? How hurt do I have to be? How much pain do I have to be in? How many things have I tried before I'm willing to say, okay, medicine man, in all of your glory, tell me what I need to do. People are desperate for somebody to help them. People are looking for answers. Some people aren't. Many people are. How do I live? Ten billion dollars a year is spent in the self-help industry. Ten billion seminars, webinars, books, conferences. Most, the, the person who's most likely to buy a self-help book is someone who bought one 18 months ago, which tells you it doesn't work. You're having to go back to the same well over and over and over and over again. It's people, millions and millions and millions and millions of people who are saying, somebody help me live my life better. Somebody tell me how to be a spouse. Tell me how to be a parent. Tell me how to manage my money. Tell me how to move ahead in business. People are desperate for somebody who can say, here's a better way of living. If you're following Jesus, you have the answer for them. For many of us, We're reluctant. We're hesitant. We don't even recognize, one, that we have the answer, or two, that the people who are asking. We're busy. We're fast. We lack confidence. We're whatever we are. And we don't even realize all of the people who are hungry and thirsty around us. Paul was set apart by, sent by, filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the key for us ongoing submission to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. If you like, it's an old uh, term, full surrender. That's kind of the old church term for what I'm talking about. It's a recognition that in every area of my life, I've got to come under the lordship of Jesus and say, I fully surrender to you. That's what opens up 
this life in the spirit to us and for us. That's what allows you. That's what puts Paul in a position to dress a guy down and say, here's all of the things about you. You're a child of the devil. You're an enemy of God. You're a trickster. You're deceitful. You're perverting the ways of God. So you're going to be blind. Let's move aside from you. And I'm going to deal with you who is earnestly and honestly asking for the truth. It's not about having raw power. It's about being able to step into situations where people are asking questions, where people have needs. And it's not you. You're just a channel. You're a means, a vessel, however you want to say that. You've been set apart just like Paul and Barnabas were. Do you know what you've been set apart to do? Do you know what the the good works that he has for you are? Don't hear that as, do you know a a 10-point business plan or do you know some grand ministry to launch? That's not what I'm asking. I'm saying, do you know why he set you apart at all? How do you love people well? What is that for you? You great at breaking the ice. Are you great at pulling people into your home? What are you good at? How do you love people? How do you serve people? How do you bless people? That's what you've been set apart to do. Who are you praying for right now? Maybe that's who you've been set apart for. Do you know that he sent you? The missionaries from Jerusalem and the missionaries from Antioch. Very different. Jerusalem missionaries are accidental. Antioch missionaries are intentional, but they're both ultimately accomplishing the same things. These missionaries who are scattered when in, in, in Acts chapter 8, when there's a persecution after the martyrdom of Stephen, the church goes underground and then scatters. And those guys take the gospel with them and share. Accidental. Scattered. In Antioch, chapter 13, God, what are you asking us to do? We're fasting. We're worshiping. Set apart for me. Barnabas and Paul, intentional and sent. One is not better than the other. Accidental, scattered, intentional, and sent, it's still the same. Do you realize you've been sent, whether you feel like it or not, if you're saying everything about my life is an accident right now, none of this is what I signed up for. I didn't sign up for this job. I didn't sign up for this city. I didn't sign up for this house. Maybe on some level you're saying, I didn't even sign up for this family. It's what you have. Can you recognize God's sovereignty in that at all? And say, he sent me. Some of you are, it's as clear as day. You can write it out and it sounds great. This is how I got from A to B to C to D. And it's wonderful. Are you living daily with that sense of sentness? Do you know why he's got you, where he's got you? Again, whether you would say it's accidental or intentional, there's purpose behind it. Do you live daily recognizing your need for the Holy Spirit saying, God, I need you to fill me. I don't have the resources for my own life, much less the things to give away to other people without your ongoing work in my life. Fundamental to all this thing I've been praying about for myself for the past couple of months, and I want to invite you in to begin to pray this as well. Has God captivated your heart? Has he captured your heart? When I think about set apart and sent and filled, it sounds great. And I can run after those things for a period of time and I'll always quit. I fade. I get distracted. It gets hard. There's opposition, whatever. Motivation for me is key. And I think about this idea of being captivated by Jesus, being captured, my heart being captured by him. Faith, hope, and love, those three and Love is the one that remains. Love is the one that's eternal. That's the motivation for us. 
Paul, when he's talking in Ephesians 3, when he's praying for this church, he says, I'm praying that you'll know the height and width and breadth and depth of the love of God. When he talks in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, it's the love of Jesus that compels us to go. These are some of the Psalms. These are some things that David, two of these are David and one is somebody else. I read these and think, man, that is not me. My soul does not pant for God the way a deer pants for streams of water. My soul yearns. I don't think I've yearned for anything. Even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out. Oh God, you're my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And again, this is David. This isn't some poet kid in the back of Starbucks writing love notes. This guy cut the head off a nine foot tall giant. He's a man. And you see what he's talking about. I'm not asking about emotion. I'm asking about relationship. And I'm not asking how much do you love God. I'm asking do you realize how much he loves you? Have you been captured? Have you been captivated by this profound love that God has for you and for your world? If you have and when you have been set apart and sent and filled, that's a natural outflow of a heart that's been captured and captivated by this deep and rich love that God has for us and for others. So that's my invitation to you this morning. If you would say that, that isn't me. I'm not yearning. I'm not panting. If that's not you, let me invite you to begin to ask the Lord to captivate your heart. Don't pray unless you're serious, because he will, and it'll turn things upside down. I'm already seeing that after just a few months. Changing the way I spend my time, changing the way I spend my money, changing the way I interact with people. I talked to three strangers last week. Three. I hadn't talked to three strangers in 41 years. He'll, he'll begin. You start asking. He'll grab your heart and you'll find yourself stepping out in ways that today you're going, I would never do that. That's so uncomfortable. That's so not like me. I don't even want to do that. And it won't be because you have to. It'll be because he's stirring your heart. He grabs you. And that motivation then moves you forward to say set apart and sent and filled. Let's pray. I don't want you to come forward this morning. I want you just to stay in your seat. If you would like to kneel, I guess you can come forward and kneel. That's fine. We've got a, a pew over there you can kneel at. Or, yeah, you can do that. But I'm good if you just stay in your seat. Bo's going to sing a song. We're not even going to have the words on the screen. You don't need to sing. Just in your heart, if you're willing. If you're not willing, then you can think about something else and pray about something else. But if you're willing, would you just say, God, capture my heart? You may not even be following Jesus this morning. You may like, I'm not, I'm still sitting on go here. You can still pray the same prayer. It's a great prayer. Captivate my heart, God. If you want my life, then capture my heart. That's really what we're all praying. God, if you want my life, capture my heart. Captivate me with your love, with your holiness, with your beauty, with your justice, with your mercy, with your compassion, with your wisdom. Grab me. I'm not necessarily praying for emotional encounters, but we are praying for a deep, deep relational desire. And so, God, that's my prayer for each one of us, that those in the room who are willing would pray along with me, not just today, 
but in the days moving forward. God, captivate me. Capture my heart. Again, it's not about how much we love you at this point. It's about us comprehending how much you love us. So would you increase our capacity, God, to grasp how high and wide and long and deep is this profound love that you have for us. God, I pray for every man and woman in this room that in the weeks and the months and even the years ahead, we could all, with Paul, say, it's your love that compels us to fill in the blank. It's your love that compels us to pack up our family and go on a mission trip. It's your love that compels me to serve at must. It's your love that compels me to give away 30% of the money that we bring into our house. It's your love that compels me to bring people into my house and feed them a meal. It's your love, God, that compels me to ask a coworker to go to lunch, whatever the facility and discipline, but your love.